Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. Welcome to the Grizzly Beat. I'm Louisa Wilcox and delighted today to have on the show Doug Peacock, who is a writer, naturalist, and veteran, as well as advocate for the grizzly bear. Doug first met grizzlies up close and personal after spending two tours in Vietnam as a Green Beret medic when he returned a bit of an emotional wreck and sought out solace in the wilderness in Wyoming's Wind River Mountains and then in in and around Glacier Park. Doug has spent over four decades documenting and filming grizzlies in the wild. He's written two books on grizzly bears, Grizzly Years and The Essential Grizzly. And he's written other books as well, including Walking It Off, about his relationship with author Ed Abbey, and most recently, In the Shadow of the Sabretooth. Thanks, Doug, for being with us. Maybe we could start off with the fact that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has just stripped Yellowstone grizzlies of their endangered species protections. Why do you think this is a problem? Uh, Thanks, uh, Louisa. It's a pleasure talking to you. Um, This is nothing new. They've been pushing this agenda for, uh, I I don't know, approaching three decades now. And uh, all the Federal Wildlife Service uh, has wanted to do with the Yellowstone grizzly is is delisted since sometime in the the 90s when their rumblings came true. And, of course, they tried it 10 years ago, and uh, people like you and me helped take them to court, and a federal judge reversed that decision to list the grizzlies. Uh, they were delisted in 2007 and relisted uh, uh, in 2009. And basically we're facing the same uh, battle today. The reason I'm so concerned is that this time they've added a trophy hunting season by the states, the three states that surround Yellowstone. And in, in my opinion, that will in itself the, along with the last the loss of protections, the uh, the absence of efforts to establish uh, any kind of uh, connectivity or linkage or genetic you know exchange with other grizzly bear ecosystems to the north, uh, that hunting season is going to plunge the Yellowstone grizzly, this little island ecosystem of bears, into a, a terminal decline. And so I feel this is the most important moment of all our decades own, you know, old battles to save the Yellowstone grizzly. Uh, all these, uh, the, the combination of climate change and a proposed trophy hunting season is, uh, is the end of the Yellowstone grizzly. So uh, we're going to have to win this one. Yeah. So a year ago, you spearheaded a letter opposing uh, grizzly delisting in Yellowstone by scientists that uh, was signed by scientists Jane Goodall and E.O. Wilson and George Schaller and the likes of Ted Turner and actors Jeff Bridges and Michael Keaton. And this led to a film that you did and a campaign, uh, Save the Yellowstone, Save Yellowstone Grizzlies. What were you seeking to do with this? Well, I was trying to get the attention of the Obama White House. And that's why I had the signatories that I did. You know, largely there were, there were 
elder, you know, elder statesmen, uh, Yvonne Chouinard and, uh, you know, older, older scientists, E.O. Wilson and George Scheller, Jane Goodall, and I think I asked Michael Sule to sign that letter. Mm-hmm. But we also had some good neighbors uh, and friend, relatives of friends that live right here in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem that put us in contact with uh, the people who had an insight on the Obama White House. And we believe that collective effort by everybody got us a, a small six-month delay in at least the announcing of the, uh, of the final rule. Um, but, uh, you know, climate change in itself, uh, obviously President Obama didn't have any idea what his troops were doing and saying, you know, he didn't have his oxen under a great yoke during the last of, uh, uh, because that is a, 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 in my opinion, a significant mar on, uh, you know, a job well done by President Obama, especially on climate change. And this one just slipped through and, that whole effort, and it, it, it was helped a lot by, you know, just some local, uh, just a bunch of friends of mine, Dan Sullivan and Chuck Ironstone and Andrea Peacock in particular, put together that Save the Yellowstone Grizz and got enough money to send Chuck out to the climate march to have a presence there and just to continue to, you know, to to engage the public as, in, in as broad a way as we could, you know, comments to Obama and, you know, uh, signatures on petitions. I think they got you know, over 800,000 altogether. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is not expected to, uh, to you know, you're not going to rein in the Federal Wildlife Service on their, on their urgency to uh, delist the Yellowstone Grizzly, but at least we could get somebody's attention. And, and engage the public at the same time to let them know this is all our battle and that bear is going to go away without our involvement. We've got to beat the feds this time in a federal court. You know, all of that uh, activity, the political action and whatnot, it was fine, but, but now it, it's clearly shifted into the courts. And we have four or five different uh, lawsuits against the delisting rule by the Federal Wildlife Service. The one that... Uh, you know, I'm most closely involved in is uh, the one by Earth Justice, representing, among other people, the Sierra Club. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is saying it doesn't matter uh, if we've lost a critical food source, white bark pine, to climate change and disease. And the climate change, in fact, doesn't matter to grizzly bears. Uh, what's your response to this? Uh, those guys are, uh, are leading with their chin on climate change, you know, the sheer arrogance that uh, even with this administration with flatter science roaming around the globe um, to, to uh, dismiss the importance of climate change to Yellowstone Grizzlies is, you know, the most blatant over misstatement uh, I've ever seen a federal uh, agency do. And, you know, from now on, every decision, every piece of litigation about endangered species of any kind is going to include an evaluation of climate change. And I don't think uh, if the Federal Wildlife Service has to do this another thousand times, I don't think they'll ever lead with such a blatant dismissal of the effects of climate change now or in the future. And uh, I, I was really amazed to see that that uh, flatter statement 
was still in the federal register in the final rule. Uh, if I were them, this is a matter of you know playing uh, smart litigation and politics. I would have taken that sucker out, but they didn't. And I feel that's exactly uh, those are the grounds on which we uh, should uh, re- reverse this rule. Uh, there's a lot of other issues too, but that's uh, that's the main one. And you know, climate change is my God, things. Uh, arguably are going to be so different in a decade. You know, anytime you read national, international news about climate change, anytime anybody writes century, just substitute decade. And that's how fast it's happening. I have a project up on the Beaufort Sea working with the Inuit to expand a national park, and it happens to be the observational epicenter of abrupt climate change. That there's no sea ice. It's way the hell off the continental shelf where all life where things like polar bears happen. And the ocean bed, the continental shelf is boiling, methane, and so is the thawing permafrost. And uh, that is a feedback system that's going to zap us. uh, And it's going to zap us and our climate down here worldwide and Yellowstone's grizz. And perhaps they are at least as adaptive as we are, uh, grizzlies. Um, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll listen to an argument like that, but, you know, the effects upon us, um, it, it, you know, the, the projections that I read that I listen to, um, we could see industrial, you know, agriculture collapse in the next decade, which would, yeah. you know, it, that's two-legged species we're talking about. And uh, perhaps uh, Homo sapiens will, will uh, you know, in a very short time, we'll go through another bottleneck. And I don't know how tiny that bottleneck is going to be, but uh, it may take enough pressure off the crowding we're doing upon things like the island, which is Yellowstone Grizzly population segment, to give them a break. But, I mean, those are all awful prognoses. I happen to think it's quite in the realm of reality, but, I mean, for... For uh, the federal government, in, in, you know, entrusted with, with taking care of our endangered wildlife, for them to, to just blow it off, it's, uh, it's unforgivable ignorance. Yeah, and it's, it's stunning. Um, I, we shall see in the, in the courtrooms soon enough, I think. So, Doug, you just mentioned uh, the problem of Yellowstone being an island. Um, Fish and Wildlife Service would have you believe that a recovery target in Yellowstone of 500 grizzly bears has been met for the last decade, and that's fine, and that's enough. And you've argued that that's not enough. Maybe you can um, describe or discuss what your vision is for grizzly bears. Well, the only viable uh, success story for Yellowstone grizzlies is uh, is for the population to expand on to existing habitat and complete the linkages under over freeways it doesn't matter but our culture happens to have enough management enough biology enough engineering we can do those kinds of things and that population has to has to has to grow uh, anytime you've got declining habitat which we have and that's that's the you know that's that's the one uh, inarguable con- consequence of, of global warming. It's going to be hotter and drier, and the carrying capacity for an- all animals is going to diminish. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. you've got a set, set number of, of bears, and the 
carrying capacity goes down, you've got you to get more territory. And that means right. human tolerance. Uh, a project unto itself on the edges of the ecosystem where, mm-hmm. you know, the first bold colonizing grizzly bears will show up. And those are generally young males the first time. And we just blow them away now. So that's a problem mm-hmm. in itself. And, uh, you know, the permanent colonization doesn't take place until you get mothers and cubs. And, and that's, 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 that's a tough road. That plus the engineering and the acquisition of, of uh, wildlife corridors, that would have to take place. And theoretical biology, I mean, you, you, we've all got our biologist friends can tell us, but, you know, the theoretical numbers are a minimum of, you know, 4,000 animals for, you know, a, mm-hmm. a finite possibility of surviving 100 years in a place like, like Yellowstone. And uh, uh, that's not likely to happen real soon. So, you know, we've got to take care of the bears that can and will survive there with a lot of, uh, they're going to have to colonize a lot of uh, new territory, new habitat outside Yellowstone. We've got plenty of it, but it's not Mm -hmm. all going to be public land. We're going to have, you know, we're going to have to to do a real crusade with the citizenry because it's going to require a, a broad blast of human habitat and we've got lots of precedents for that there's a lot of good people living around here uh ranchers sharing their habitat with grizzlies up in tom minor and such and mm-hmm. uh you know we could do that that's all possible but not if the federal wildlife gets away with this rule so you know the overpowering issue right now is that the lawyers uh get this reversal and before they actually go into into court and argue the rule itself, we're probably going to have to uh, take on uh, a hunting season, probably the first one by Wyoming, with some kind of injunction. And, yes. uh, you know, I know people are preparing for that. And that that's where it lies right now. But, uh, you know, the, what lies behind it is, you know, realize how important this single animal is. In my mind, at least, it's, you know, the most important animal in North America for the simple reason that it's a, it's a one critter that informs the most arrogant, uh, myopic species in the history of the earth, humans. Uh, right. There's two, two place on earth and in nature, you know, which is not at the top. It's somewhere in the middle. And uh, this is an animal that can kill and eat you if it wants to. And that's a very healthy relationship to consider when you go out into the world which uh, is our ancient home, of course, but places whose remnants we call the wilderness today. That's where all, all human evolution took place, including that fine thing we call a human mind. It wasn't in cities or farms. Yeah. Well, speaking of the wilderness, you've said that our collective survival is dependent on wilderness in a real way and that we are as much endangered as the grizzly bear. Can you amplify your thoughts on this? Simply that I believe uh, survival is is collective, that uh, we, you know, the, the human mind survived and evolved, and, you know, it's a spinning wheel of animal, animal symbolism. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure that's where our language came from observing animals and, and uh, trying to talk about them. But uh, I don't, I can't see, I cannot see uh, Homo sapiens apart from, uh, from, from 
vast areas of the original habitat. I mean, the, the simple observation that, you know, that which evolves doesn't survive without the conditions of its genesis. And again, my argument is, you know, I've, I've spent most, almost all my adult life so far <clears throat> and fighting for wilderness, mm-hmm. for you know, whatever lives there. But it's also, that is the native home of Homo sapiens. That's, that's what we came out of. And it, it's uh, whoever is, right now we're, we're, we live in a time of what should be pure, you know, it should be rational care because what we've done to the planet and the fact that uh, global warming is happening, the Arctic's are heating up twice as fast as anywhere else. All of that, um, you know, means that uh, we're as endangered as any uh, grizzly bear lynx uh, up and down, the, up and down the land. And the, the fact that you know we don't believe in it does not change the reality of our predicament. Uh, and we're going to whatever survives, we're just going to need is going to need chunks of that wilderness uh, mm-hmm. to continue surviving in, perhaps even to evolve on. And it'll also be there for all the other plants and animals. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, you, if you can keep a grizzly bear on the land, um, boy, that's, that's, a, that's a huge start because you can virtually keep everything else there, too. Yeah. Well, you said in an interview in The Tonight Show uh, in the 1970s that, you know, you didn't believe that we could have 2 million visitors annually in Yellowstone without severe impacts to grizzly bears. And, and now today we have over 4 million a year uh, coming to Yellowstone to, to enjoy wildlife and some respite from their lives. Um, there are major traffic jams for wildlife and even at the, even at the entrance stations. Uh, what do you think should be done about that problem? Um, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not much of a uh, a manager of human traffic, but I you know it doesn't take a lot of enlightenment to see that you just cannot cram private vehicles onto those little corridors, which are death you know which are, are death roads for for wildlife, grizzly bears included. Um, it, 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 you know, Denali. Well, you know, I, I was up there a lot. 20, 30 years ago, and and they they had a shuttle system that worked, and I know Glacier's mm-hmm. looking at it now, and Yellowstone's going to do the same. It's crazy to think you can have this almost 19th century a notion of of vacation and travel and and recreation in a place like Yellowstone with just countless millions of of of, of people and vehicles that they travel in. Uh, there's just there's not enough, even if even if 98% of the time they stick to the roads. That's still, you know, that's a lot of, that's, that's, that's a little too much. I don't believe you can have mm-hmm. quite that much traffic without unnerving the natural behavior of wild animals and the movement mm-hmm. of wild animals. And that's something the park service should really take care of. I mean, they're, that's, that's what they're good at. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're good at those solutions. And they probably already thought of what, what will work for them, and it's just a matter of political courage if they're going to say right. so, you know. Right. No, because I agree. It's, it's money, and money and greed drive most of our problems today, are, you know, arise from human greed, and, and there's a lot of money in the national parks for somebody to make, and uh, they want that traffic. But mm-hmm. it's not sustainable in any way. Right. Well, Doug, you've shared uh, so many stories of grizzly bears in your writing and in interviews, 
And uh, you often uh, shared a story about one of your favorite bears up in glacier country that you called Black Grizzly. Why was he a favorite of yours? Well, he was the baddest thing on the mountain. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I would run into the Black Grizzly in Huckleberry Habitat this time of year. Uh, maybe a little later, you know, the end of August, the first two, three weeks of September. And it'd be in prime huckleberry habitat where in Glacier there'd be a seasonal, uh, you could call it a gathering and a concentration where uh, grizzlies migrated uh, uh, to a little, a, a small fringe mountain range in Glacier Park. From, it, and, you know, I don't know where they all came from, but the ones that I, I did, I was lucky enough to recognize came from, you know, the interior of the Livingston range, like up at Arrow Creek and South Creek drainages and stuff like that. And, uh, but they'd come all the way over there during the huckleberry season because there's so much food. And a huckleberry patch isn't quite a salmon stream or mm-hmm. a garbage dump where you see, you know, just tons of grizzlies stacked in there. But uh, it's enough where a, a grizzly bear is going to have several interactions with other grizzly bears every day. And you get to watch that. And so it's a social hierarchy. Every bear, every wild grizzly, and this is true anywhere, anytime, even in Yellowstone and Glacier, they know every other bear and how they should react to it, whether it's a bear mm-hmm. to run away from or displays, you know, to dominate or whatever, they know. And so, you know, so in Glacier, I'd watch, you know, all this stuff going on, uh, you know, mothers with cubs running off sub-adults and bigger bears running off families and, uh, you know, and people and tolerating family groups almost together at one time sharing yearling cubs. And then there was this big black grizzly that would come in late to this area, this concentration of grizzlies. I mean, it's a place where Peter Matheson and I saw 25 grizzlies Different mm, ones wow. in, in two days, including 16 at one time from one, you know, one little place. And uh, mm. that's a hell of a lot of bears stacked in there. Well, anyway, this black grizzly would show up late in the year, and he would charge everything and try to kill everything. Huh. I, I, I saw him fight, and, and even uh, I, I saw him fight. I never saw him succeed in killing anything. But, I mean, he was just the baddest son of a bitch in the, in the world. And one of those times, he let me pass the ridge. I was passing on a ridge, you know, a knife ridge in, in Glacier, headed for the crest of this little mountain range during a, you know, winter storm was blowing in. And I couldn't mm-hmm. get off the sides, and I had to get up to my camp. And all of a sudden, there's a mother grizzly and her little yearling cub below me eating huckleberries, and I see behind her is this black grizzly. And he's going to see her, and he does. And, he, and all of a sudden, there's bellows and roars, and this mother grizzly runs right across the ridge, right in front of me. I'm, I'm on the top with a black grizzly behind, you know, just a couple of yards mm. behind. And mm. uh, he starts to catch up with his cub, and at the last minute, the mother knows that she spins on her heels, locks jaws, and they fight and bellow, the sounds of which, you know, there's nothing like it in nature, like grizzly bellowing and roaring and fighting. Anyway, it it backs off into a stalemate where the black grizzly just turns turns his body slightly and the fight's over. But meanwhile, he's on this knife ridge that I have to pass in order to get to my camp because there's a storm coming in, and I have to inter- interact with this son of a bitch. And, uh, and you know, it's, I, I, he's 30 feet away, and I talk to him. 
he doesn't see me for, then he sees me, and he does like a hop charge, I guess you could call it. He just hmm. covers half the distance to me, slams his paws down, and I see all the signs you don't want to see on a charging grizzly. You know, his head is lowered, uh, his, his, his eyes are turning yellow, the rough on his back is up a little bit and his ears are back. I mean, that's mm. usually the last thing you see before flying fur. Well, anyway, I just, I started to just talk conversation to this bear. Not much. Doesn't matter what you say. I think it's how you say it. But at the last minute, rather than charge me, he spun and just disappeared into the brush. I, <laughs> I went by him and uh, got up to the top of this mountain, by which time it was dark. I built a little fire, which I'd never do again. And because I knew that I was going to see that bear again, he did. He came up this, you know, the little pyramid hill. He came up <laughs> one side of that hill, and I would get some, you know, spruce boughs burning and go off and see him and hear him and talk to him. He'd go back down. But then an hour and a half later, he'd come up another side of the mountain. He did this till 2 in the morning, and I was just terrified and exhausted. And so the next day I needed to get out of the out of the mountains, because it's his mountain, not mine. That's what I did every year. I, when he showed up, I just got out. And so I decided I had to wait till he was on a day bed to safely pass down the mountains, you know, when he wasn't feeding. And so I cast all my gear up in a tree and went for a short walk right in the crest where I wasn't going to run into this bear. I came back, and there was something floating on the breeze. And this black grizzly had pulled down my cache of gear and eaten everything that smell to me. I mean, it's a dirty t-shirt and a sleeping bag. Well, ignoring ev- everything else, you know, tents, anything. It's sent wow. a very personal message for me to get the hell off his mountain, which I did. So anyway, that's a bear I ran into year after year for better part of a decade. And uh, he made my life a lot more insecure, but much more interesting. So that's <laughs> my favorite, favorite grizz up there. Wow. That's quite the story. So, Doug, you were a really good friend of Edward Abbey's, and uh, he framed the character George Washington Hayduke on you in a book he wrote called The Monkey Wrench Gang. Maybe you could share a bit about your relationship with, with Ed. <laughs> well, he was the most difficult close friend I ever had. Uh, and I wrote a whole book on this called Walking It Off, so I won't linger on it. But, you know, that friendship, we fought like, well, like brothers. And, uh, but at the end, I was with him. I, was, I spent the last night with him. The last time he smiled, that Abby smiled, was when I told him where he was going to be buried. Hmm. And I, two days later, I buried him out in this beautiful desert. I tend to go back most years on the anniversary of Ed's burial, which is March 16th, which is also the anniversary of the My Lai Massacre, which I flew over going out of Vietnam when it happened. And so that's my day of the death. And mm-hmm. uh, when my culture doesn't provide ceremonies, I sort of invent my own. But last time I, I, I went out there, um, a friend of mine, Doug Tompkins, uh, drowned in a kayak accident with his, yeah. uh, uh, with his friends, Rick Ridgway and Jeb Ellison. And... Uh, uh, I went out for Doug Tompkins Memorial in San Francisco, and Yvonne Chouinard told me that uh, Rick hadn't come back from the other side yet. See, uh, Rick was, was in the kayak with Doug. They both mm-hmm. capsized. Doug died of hypothermia. Rick, who's a little younger, made it. 
and just barely made it, but he came really close. So the three of us, Deb Ellison, Rick Ridgway, and me, we went out to Ed Abbey's uh, grave uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, in March, in the spring, and, and uh, had a wake and a little bit of closure. And it's a place I go again and again. I, often, most often I go by myself and just have a talk with old dad. But then mm-hmm. aside more, the co-founder of Round River, along with me, lost his beautiful 35-year-old son to acute meningitis. And so last, March 16th, Dennis and I went out and left uh, a medicine, uh, uh, a uh, crow medicine bag of Paul's ashes out there on Redsbury. So it's been, you know. And, uh, of course, Ed's militancy, you know, uh, in defending wilderness uh, is, uh, you know, there's just no question. That's why we became friends. We share the belief, the simple belief, in the importance and the value of wilderness and the need to fight for it. And, uh, you know, that's his legacy. And I, uh, I push it all the time, every, mm-hmm. every day, no matter what I do, you know, giving interviews or writing articles or writing books. I mean, Ed Abbey's vision and mine are remarkably similar all these years later. Yeah. Well, there cannot be a stronger voice for wilderness uh, than Ed Abbey's other than yours. Um, and I think you're sharing a lot with, uh, with, with people at large, with younger generations, and hopefully get them more engaged in protecting what we have left, which is shrinking day by day. Yeah. So thank you, Doug. Oh, thank you, Louisa. So are you, I'll leave on this note, but are you optimistic about the future of grizzly bears in places like Yellowstone? Probably, even though I'm realistic to know it's an uphill fight all the damn way. But so is an uh, it's an uphill fight for the survival of our own species, and I'm certainly going to fight that one till the end I die. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, I get that all the time. People write books on how if you're optimistic, things are going to be good, and if you're pessimistic about the future, that things are going to be bad. But truthfully, I don't think it matters what you think. Uh, we need to recognize that the reality is, is grim, that the fight is uphill, and fight anyway. The important thing is to fight. And uh, I would guess because of my, you know, my willingness to do this up until I'm pushing up daisies or bear grass, um, I have to be optimistic. Yeah. Well, Doug, if, uh, you know, if people, listeners, want to get more information, information on what they can do, uh, maybe you can uh, make some suggestions here. Yeah, uh, I have a site, uh, which all my articles and writing is on it. It's just DougPeacock.net. It's DougPeacock.net. And the Yellowstone Grizzly Organization is just called uh, SaveTheYellowstoneGrizzly.org, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And yeah. that's a place to start. And uh, uh, I have an author's uh, Facebook site that gives you know all my books and all the magazine articles I've published in the last 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And that's, Thank you, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a good hunk of work. It's an amazing amount of work. Uh, and uh, just having gone through some of that list myself, uh, the, man, the number of articles that you've published or have been published on you and the, your books, it's, uh, it's quite a reading list. So. 
Thank you, Doug. Thank you for taking the time and your long-standing commitment to Grizzlies in the Wild. This is Louisa Wilcox, and you're listening to the Grizzly Beat. 